Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. We're continuing our conversation with Nauvoo crime expert Marianne Clements. In our next conversation, we're going to talk more about the counterfeiters who turned out to be murderers. Yes, it's some pretty interesting and crazy stuff that happened. We'll also find out that some of these counterfeiting charges were pinned on church leaders and are part of the reason they left in the winter of February 1846. You won't want to miss this conversation. Check it out. So we've established that there was counterfeiting going on. We've established that there was criminal gangs. So three gangs, the Joseph Jackson, Edward Bonney, and who was the third one? Um, we know Peter Hawes did some counterfeiting. And he was a member of the church. But we do know, based on some statements that happened later on in winter quarters, someone said that he had admitted he'd been involved in counterfeiting in Nauvoo. And I suspect, so that's why my belief is there were probably at least three different counterfeiting operations that had occurred in Nauvoo. Then in the summer of 1845, so now um, after Joseph Smith dies, you know, there is this whole idea of counterfeiting. I, if people know about the governor's troops coming in, that's one reason the governor's troops were going to go into Nauvoo, is they, Joseph H. Jackson had told the governor that he could tell him, that he could show him where the counterfeiting presses were in Nauvoo. And so when the governor um, brings in the troops, they, that's what the Mormons are like, ostensibly they were coming in looking for counterfeiting presses. Well, yeah, because there were counterfeiting presses in Nauvoo. But... So, that is an element that people tend to kind of overlook a little bit. It wasn't just a random excuse. There was evidence of counterfeiting. And in fact, we get something that happens later. Some people talking about how they had actually hid Bonnie's two presses. At this time, they had to get him out of his house and hide him somewhere else so that the, the governor's troops wouldn't find them. So in the fall, after Joseph Smith is killed... In the fall, there are these questions of, were the, were the Mormons counterfeiting in Nauvoo? And so um, the grand jury in Hancock County um, actually hears testimony, and they bring in this Dr. Williams, a B.F.R. Buck Williams, and they ask him, was there counterfeiting going on in Nauvoo? And he's like, well, yes, Joseph Smith asked me to keep a press in my house, but it was the Mormons, and I was afraid because they would kill me if I didn't do it, but it was all Joseph Smith. And, he, and of course, Joseph Smith's dead by this point. And so um, Dr. Williams, he would not name anyone else. He refused to name anyone else. Um, he, would, he would only name Joseph Smith, who was already dead. And so, um, so Hancock County's like... So they couldn't prosecute anyone. They couldn't come out with any indictments against anyone. Because this Dr. Williams wouldn't implicate anyone else in it. So then we get into the summer of 1845. And there's a lot of criminal gang activity that gets exposed in Nauvoo, summer of 1845. The first problem is... Um, we get the what's called the Miller-Lisey murders um, over in Lee County, Iowa. So Lee County is directly across the river from Nauvoo. And so you have two, you have three guys from Nauvoo who are all Mormon go over and they're 
robbing people at night. They're coming in, they're scaring people, they're trying to rob them. There's all these robberies happening. One of the robberies goes bad. Um, and it's this reverend, this German uh, minister, John Miller, and he has him and his wife, and then he has his two daughters and their husbands all in the house. These um, guys came on, William and Stephen Hodges, and um, this guy Thomas Brown. They all come into the house, and they're like threatening them, and they're saying they're going to kill him if they don't give him all the money because they've heard that this guy has like $2,000 in his house. And so they're trying to get this money. But it ends up the Miller starts fighting back and Lisey starts fighting back. And so they end up killing um, Miller and Lisey. Like, it's brutal. They kill him or they they kill Miller and then they mortally wound Lisey. But he ends up surviving just barely, but um, his wounds eventually kill him. So, but they, one of them ends up leaving his cap there. Um, William Hodges leaves his cap there. And they run back and they go back to Nauvoo. Um, so suddenly, so the people are in the area are infuriated. They're like, this is, because robbery is one thing. Murder, like, that's a whole different story. And that was one thing that a lot of the thieves at the time knew. Like, you can, you can threaten people, you can do all you want, but you do not kill people. Because people, you know, the, the citizens wouldn't stand for it. So there's this massive manhunt. There's this $500 reward which gets put up by the people to find these murderers. And that's, that's a lot of money back then. So by this point, Edward Bonney and Dr. Williams and some other people are living in Iowa. And Edward Bonney starts getting this idea of like, I can work with some other people. We can get that $500 reward because he already has a pretty good idea of who did it. And so he and in his book, he basically takes all of the credit himself. He's like, oh, like when he sees the fur cap, he's like, oh, I saw a guy in Nauvoo who was wearing that cap. And so that's what he tells the sheriff. And, you know, he's trying. So he totally, you know, talks about how he's the hero. He's the guy. So he tells the sheriff who it is. And it's all because of him. They're able to capture the guys in Nauvoo. It was unusual because the Mormons did allow the people from Iowa to come into Nauvoo to take them, um, but there was kind of a standoff. And of course, Bonnie's the one, he claims, that he was able to kind of calm everything down. And the Mormons actually do allow these two brothers to get taken from Nauvoo um, to go back for, to get prosecuted um, for this murder. The third guy, Thomas, uh, Tom Brown, he ends up escaping. He leaves. He's smart enough to leave. What's interesting, though, is in Bonnie's uh, rough draft of his um, expose, uh, the church on microfilm has a copy of his handwritten rough draft that was deposited by his, uh, I, I believe it was a granddaughter um, in the University of Illinois. He mentions that he had actually worked quite a bit with this guy, Peter Munjar, and who was the brother-in-law of Dr. Williams. And so, and Dr. Williams around this time gets whittled out of Nauvoo because he was showing too much effort to find the murders of Miller and Lisi. So it seems like Bonnie probably was working with Dr. Williams and Dr. Williams's brother-in-law, Peter Munjar, 
in order to catch these guys, probably so they could get the $500, right? And so they're totally going after but then that means they're kind of betraying the criminal gangs, right, that they used to be a part of. Eventually, the Hodges brothers end up, um, they have to change the venue because, of course, there's way too much animosity in Lee County. But they end up getting convicted of the murder, and they end up getting hung. And so there's some people who are really mad at Bonnie about this, that Bonnie would turn on people. But Bonnie was like, hey, I got you know $500 out of this. <laughs> He's like, apparently, turning to the other side can pay really well. But you had the people, I mean, it's actually really cool because Bonnie, in his book, he actually um, gets these lists of all of the people who were trying to be witnesses on behalf of the Hodges um, to try to claim that, like, no, they were in Nauvoo at the time. And so, um, so you actually get this, like, really neat list of both Mormons and non-Mormons who are part of the criminal gang. <laughs> they all were trying to like testify with each other and then um bonnie was uh this is just convoluted it is very convoluted which is why i don't tend to go into it with people because it took a couple years just to kind of straighten everything out bonnie um so of course the the munger brothers do testify against the hodges because they were probably working with Bonnie. Dr. Williams refuses to testify against him, probably because he'd gotten whittled out. He probably was a little more worried about his safety if he publicly testified against uh, the Hodges. Um, Bonnie was on the schedule to testify. He ended up not testifying, but the Hodges um, get convicted, and they are hung. To the end, both of the Hodges... The day before they're hung, one of the Hodges brothers comes to one of the lawyers and um, is like, okay, I'll confess everything and I'll tell you who's um, all there and who was all involved, who the criminal gang, he's like, I'll tell everything. And then the next morning he's like, I can't do it. It's going to put my family in danger if I do that. And so towards the end, when the two brothers get hung up in Burlington, Iowa, they they're protesting their innocence all the way to the end. And just before they're hung, they claim that they're only getting hung because they're Mormons, because they're being persecuted because of their religion. But even the church leaders in Nauvoo knew that these guys were guilty of this murder. But it's interesting because they actually published in the Nauvoo newspaper that these men were not Mormons. They, they start to try to distance themselves from them and say, no, they weren't Mormons. They, they were but there's a couple interesting things that also happen around the same time. When Brigham Young refuses to save these guys, to send in people to save these two guys, their, one of their brothers is furious about it. And so he actually threatens to expose all of the crime going on in the city. And he threatens Brigham Young's life. And the next night, he's dead. He, he is dead. Close to He shows up dead. He was stabbed with his own knife multiple times. Ribs were broken, um, and it happened at night. He was on his way, it seemed, to Brigham Young's house. And there's policemen at Brigham Young's house, and so there's this huge... He's found by the policemen who are guarding Brigham Young's house, and people are asking him, who did this to you, because he's still kind of alive. 
he refuses to name who does it to him, who, who killed him, according to the policeman. Hmm. He just says, a friend from the river, someone who I thought was a friend. And so, like, of course, there's this huge thing where people are like, oh, it was totally the Mormon policeman who killed him because he was threatening the life of Brigham Young. And so there's people like I think uh, Mike Quinn and some others are convinced it was Hosea Stout, who was the chief of police, who totally had him killed. Because in his journal that night, he mentions he went to bed early and got up when people came in to tell him that this guy, Irvin Hodges, had been killed. And some people are like, really? (laughs) He went to bed early that night? It's more likely that there were other Mormon criminals who were probably the ones who killed him in order to not have him reveal the depth of all the criminal gang activity. <laughs> One of the non-Mormon criminals eventually uh, names this Mormon criminal who, who did it. He says that this guy returned Jackson Redden was the one who killed Irvin Hodges. And he is a good candidate because he was a Mormon. He was trusted by Mormon leaders and he was absolutely a criminal as well. Um, part of the criminal gang activity. So you have that, you have another brother, Amos Hodges, who goes missing in July, that same summer. And people suspect that he was also killed. So you have like all of these murders happening, right? In, Around Nauvoo. And these are Mormon guys getting killed. Then, and um, so they're hung mid-July. This is 1845? 1845. So the murders, the Miller-Lisey murders are are committed mid-May because the son-in-law, Henry Lisey, had survived the murder. He was able to positively identify the killers, which is why the Hodges brothers eventually get convicted. Um, And then he dies shortly afterwards. But something else is happening. So a couple of the guys who had signed up to be witnesses for the Hodges end up committing a major murder also in July, (laughs) shortly before um, the Hodges are killed or are hung over in Who knew there was all this? I mean, this is Wild West stuff here, right? It is, absolutely. Because that was the frontier at the time. Yeah. And that's something that's important to remember is that, you know, it was really hard to convict criminals when they would have all these friends who would come and be witnesses for them. And so a lot of times people would get really frustrated over these criminal gangs. And that's why you had these eventually vigilante groups who would come in and drive out these gangs or hang the people or shoot the people like to try to like clean up their community. Um, And if you understand that, a lot of the surrounding community viewed Mormons as this massive criminal gang. You can start to understand why you had these vigilante activities going on and they were targeting Mormons. They were trying to warn them out. They were trying to like burn their houses so they would leave because <laughs> they were trying to clean up their community. They saw Mormons as criminals. Um, and the only way they could live in peace would be um, to get them out of the area. They could not live in peace with them because they were criminals. Gaviant robbers. Basically, yeah. And there, there were criminals who were based in Nauvoo. A couple of these were these non-Mormon criminals who were on that list of witnesses, who were witnesses for the Hodges brothers. Several of them get this plan. They're going to shake down this guy named Colonel Davenport up in Davenport, 
by Davenport, Iowa. He actually lived on the island right next to Davenport, Iowa. But, like, they literally named the city after him. But he lived um, up in Rock Island. And he was this really well-respected, this old citizen. And supposedly, someone had found out that he had all this money. Like, they thought it was twelve, thirteen thousand dollars $13,000 that he had in his house. Like, this was, you know, the hall of all halls. Like, they would be able to be done, like, you know, like doing any criminal activity if they got this hall. One of the guys was a little doubtful, but they end up going to this house of the Redden family who lived across the river from Nauvoo. And they plan this well, they planned some stuff in Nauvoo, but they um, are also at this house of the Reddens, and they end up leaving. It's three, three guys, Robert Birch, William Fox, who's called Judge Fox, and this guy, John Long. And both John Long and I think it was Birch and Fox, actually, they were all like involved in the trying to help the Hodges brothers. Birch had actually gone with a couple of other criminals to, they had actually mortgaged their property in order to pay for the lawyers for the Hodges brothers. So like these guys were all very clearly intertwined. So these guys go up to Davenport, Iowa, which is about like a hundred miles north of Nauvoo. And they end up um, going in. And again, it's another botched robbery. They, the, the old guy's in his house alone. It's the 4th of July. It's a 4th of July picnic. All of his family leaves. So he's in the house. It's the perfect opportunity to come in, shake him down, and get all the money and leave. They go in, but almost immediately he starts trying to fight back, and so one of them shoots him in the leg. And they don't think, I, I don't believe that they think that it's a mortal wound. But they shoot him in the leg, and... They're trying to get him to reveal his safe. They make him open up his safe, and there's only like $600 in there. And they're like, where's all the rest of the money? And so, you know, he, so they're like, they're basically torturing him in a way like, one of the guys like, I was just trying to give him water. But the way Davenport ends up surviving for a few hours afterwards, and he's like, was talking about how they were like pouring water in his face and like trying to wake him up. And so he saw it as like they were torturing him. And so he tries to actually point towards, he has apparently the secret drawer in a dresser, but they don't ever find the secret drawer. So they think he's just like tricking them and they get more mad and they're just like so frustrated. And then they end up looking out his window and they're like, man, like, so they, they're able to get a watch and but it's only $600. It's not worth you know, the, the effort that they put into this. And so they're frustrated and they end up looking out over the river and there's this, um, they see some people in rafts in the river and they get kind of scared. And so the burglars end up um, leaving and running away before he's, and so he's still kind of conscious and so he and starts yelling out, out for help. This Davenport, what? He bleeds out basically? He ends up, yeah, dying basically from loss of blood and shock. But he, so the crime happened around like 2 p.m. in the afternoon. He ends up dying about 9 p.m. that night. But before he dies, he's able to shout out, shout for help. People come in. And he's able to talk about, he's able to give a really accurate description of the three guys that came in. 
so I mean they're able to write up very detailed descriptions of these three guys and then he ends up of course passing away he was like a beloved member of the community like for Utah it would be like Larry H. Miller someone who had gone in and brutally murdered Larry H. Miller like the community just gathers around and the family because the family's fairly wealthy they end up putting up a $1,500 reward almost immediately and they try all the leads but they they end up just they can't find anything and so they're they're putting out this $1,500 reward and so um, I think it's about a couple weeks later so now the Hodges brothers have died Bonnie's down in Lee County Iowa and they get this and he's hanging out with the sheriff down there who he worked with in order to get the Hodges brothers, right? And so he's with the sheriff when they end up seeing this newspaper bill talking about this $1,500 reward. And it has this description of these three guys. And Bonnie's like, I know who those guys are because they were criminals in Nauvoo. Um, and he had probably worked with them. <laughs> he, <laughs> there's other evidence for that, but he, so he's like, hey, Sheriff, I actually know who these guys are. Can you write me a letter of recommendation up to the family? And so he, the sheriff writes him a letter of recommendation to the family saying, you know, this guy totally helped us with down here finding the murders of these um, Miller Lisi. Um, and so and he seems to know who these guys are that killed Davenport. So he might be able to help you. Nobody's out. suspicious that he knows all these murders. <laughs> he writes the expose <laughs> and um so he's basically he's developing this reputation as a bounty hunter essentially right so he goes up to davenport iowa and rock island really illinois but he goes up and um he's with the family and he's explaining to them he's like look the three guys you're looking for are this guy named john long this guy named william fox and this guy named um his real name was Robert Birch, but he went by uh, Robert Ble Bleeker in Nauvoo. And he's like, I know these three guys are your guys. And so they're like, okay, so how do we find them? Um, and how do we get them? And so eventually, Bonnie, and in his expose, he's like, I felt so bad for them. And I knew I was one of the few people that had the skills that could probably get them. And he's like, so I just, out of the goodness of my heart, I decided to help the family. <laughs> it wasn't that $1,500. But he, you know, he, so he decides to go undercover in order to find these guys. Again, same thing as Joseph H. Jackson. It's a total get out of jail free card, right? Because he's like, I'm going to participate in this criminal activity in order to get these really bad guys. So, you know, I'm going to have to do things that look like they're illegal. Um, but he, he ends up being much, very careful. He's very careful when he goes to these different places. Because remember, he actually does have a criminal record and he is wanted in certain places. <laughs> so he has to, he's very careful about checking in with the sheriffs of all the different places that he's going in to, um, to have this. So he decides to go undercover. Before he goes undercover, he makes the family promise that if anything happens to him, they'll take care of his wife and his kids. And so, you know, he's got it handled. So if he dies, at least his wife and kids are taken care of. So he ends up, and, and this is what his book talks about, is he goes undercover, he goes back, he, 
he permeates the community and he talks about like, and of course I didn't know all of this before how to do these signs. So he talks about like, oh, I talked to this other guy and he told me about all of these criminals I could like start contacting in order to figure out where these guys had gone. And, and of course, like he's always learning all of these criminal things from other people. It's not like he already knows how to find the local criminals in the different areas. And so it's a really fascinating story. And eventually it is a, a really cool. It is, you know, a great true crime, like it'd great, be a great movie. Like it's, it's fascinating. But eventually he's able to, through his efforts, coordinating, he's, he travels, he's in Iowa, Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, and he has to go into Iowa or Ohio. And he gets a little nervous because <laughs> in the Ohio and it becomes obvious if you know he has this background where he's wanted in Ohio. It makes sense. But he's eventually able to cause, to help facilitate the arrest of eight guys. So you have the three guys who actually were in the house, who were shaking down Colonel Davenport. But then you have like the guy who was kind of the lookout. You have the guy who was you have all of these accessories who were aware of this thing who either helped them afterwards or helped them before. And so he's able to arrange the arrest of eight guys. One of them, um, William Fox, he ends up uh, escaping um, custody, but these other guys, he's all able to bring in. And remember the community is furious. And so they're bringing in. And so he helps orchestrate all of these arrests at the same time in all of these different areas so that like there's no um so the people aren't uh given a heads up it's actually a really fascinating story that has so many details to it he gets them all back in rock island the court ends up prosecuting three guys a couple of the guys are able to get uh, continuances so that their their trials will happen at the next term. One of the guys turned state's evidence, and so he's not on trial at that point, but he, you know, is able to talk about what happened and in order to lighten his own sentence. So the three guys that end up being put on trial, one of them is John Long, where he was actually one of the three guys that was there when uh, Davenport was uh, robbed. And then there's his brother, Aaron Long, who had gone up with him, but he was at the base camp. And so he was kind of holding down the fort when the three guys went in and, and robbed Davenport. But he was considered an accessory. And then the third guy was a guy named Granville Young, who was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. He had inner accepted the three guys on their way up to Davenport and he had heard about their plan and he's like oh that's a really cool plan like $13,000 that's amazing and so he's like can I buy in on it and so he had you know he's like so I'm gonna go sell these two stolen horses that I have and then I'll put that money towards it and then that way I can get a share of the stuff so he was aware of it ahead of time and that's how the lawyers end up um, prosecuting him as he was aware of it he was an accessory and he didn't try to stop them, so therefore he should be um, punished as well. Of course, the community is furious. They want justice, immediate justice. And so these three guys, even though only one of them was there at the time that they were murdered, there's this massive trial. 
And of course, you know, John Long and Aaron Long, both based in Nauvoo. Granville Young was a frequent visitor of Nauvoo. Like, they were all part of that Nauvoo criminal gang. And the three guys end up getting um, convicted and, and hung. And they're sentenced to be hung. They end up getting hung. But before they're hung, the criminal people, there's a lot of people mad at Edward Bonney now. Because Edward Bonney now has facilitated, he's like this massive hero in the community. His name is plastered all over the newspapers as this incredible bounty hunter, this, this wonderful man who brought Davenport's killers to justice. And you have the people, the criminal gangs down in Nauvoo are ticked. They are so mad at him. Also because like you have these guys, Aaron Long and Granville Young, John Long and the, the other two, they're like 19, 20, in the early 20s. So they're like fairly young kids. You have um, a lot of the older guys who are kind of mad that these young kids are getting killed because Edward Bonney turned them in, basically. And so you start getting this conspiracy. Uh, this guy down in Iowa named Silas Haight, he ends up working and he has this plan to get these three guys at least, if not off, at least, you know, maybe he can get their sentences at least lessened or something. Um, and so his plan is to have the three of them turn state's evidence against Edward Bonney. He wants to have Bonney convicted because he knows, because he was associated with the criminal gang. Silas Haight knows <laughs> that Edward Bonney was a counterfeiter. He knows he was part of all the criminal activity. And so um, he orchestrates this plan where he's going to get Bonney indicted in um, Iowa for murder, for helping out on the Miller-Lisi murders, murders with the Hottas, for counterfeiting, and for basically three counts of counterfeiting, having presses and then passing counterfeit money. And so he goes, and he's able to get Dr. Williams to testify against Bonnie. And it's likely he set up Dr. Williams to also get caught, which is Probably why Dr. Williams agreed to testify against Edward Bonney. Just because of some other reasons. <laughs> Again, this is, like you said, it's very convoluted. Right. And it is hard to piece all of this stuff together. But he's able to get these indictments. But at the same time, because they really need a trial to happen. They need a trial to happen to get an opportunity for these three guys who are about to be killed. They are two weeks away from getting hung. They need a trial to happen so these three guys can testify against Bonnie because then that'll pause. To save him. their own that heads. That will save their lives. And so they, he is like, Silas Hay books it back down to Lee County, Iowa, because the term is almost over. The court term is almost over. Um, and so he's able to get, probably arranges for Dr. Williams to get caught. But then that way, Dr. Williams will testify against Edward Bonney. He gets Bill Hickman and some of the other gang from Wild Nauvoo. Bill Hickman. Wild Bill Hickman, who was also part of the criminal gangs. He gets him to testify against Edward Bonney. That's how they get the murder charge on him. He, um, at the same time, you also have Dr. Williams testify that a bunch of church leaders were counterfeiting as well. And I suspect part of that was to try to guarantee a trial would take place. 
um, because at the time there was so much anti-Mormon sentiment. This was October 1845. The church leaders had already agreed by this point that they would be leaving in the spring. And there's all this other stuff happening in Hancock County. So, but, but again, these guys really needed a trial to happen to get these um, three kids basically um, off the hook or delayed, at least the hanging delayed, so that they could bring them in. And so what Silas Haight does is he, so he gets the indictments in Lee County. He goes to the governor of Iowa, and the governor of Iowa agrees that, you know, those three guys could be useful in the cases against Bonnie. And so he sends the extradition request to the governor of Illinois, because these guys, because Davenport lived in Rock Island, Illinois, they're getting um, killed there. But... Silas Haight was not able to get to convince the Illinois governor that um, these guys needed to be arrested. So the plan, the plan had been that on the day that they were going to get hung, Silas Haight was going to come in with a bunch of people from like a bunch of police and they were going to very publicly arrest Edward Bonney at this hanging of these three guys. And then the hanging of the three guys would be delayed. And so it was going to be this huge thing where you're going to have these three guys in front of this crowd that's like all paying attention. They're on their last words. They're going to like have all of these crimes against Edward Bonney. They're going to tell all of these how Bonnie is such a horrible person. And then... Um, so you, they're going to have the crowd all just like, oh my gosh. And then they're going to march in and arrest Edward Bonney. And then like the, the hanging would be stopped. That was the plan. That was the big dramatic plan. But the Illinois governor doesn't go along with it. Probably because he knew like people in Rock Island, they wanted justice. They wanted swift justice. And so he does not agree to allow the Iowa governor to have these guys extradited. But... They do still on the stand. They're, they're kind of delaying probably because they're still hoping that these police officers will come. Edward Bonney figures out that something's up. He gets warned by Lyman E. Johnson. Lyman E. Johnson is part of this whole thing. <laughs> He's an um, attorney. But he had family connections to a lot of the criminals. He was an apostle, right? He had been an apostle, yeah. He had left the church, though. Or he'd been excommunicated back in Missouri. So, I mean, it's just, it's so convoluted. So, on the stand, when these guys are getting killed, uh, or just before they're hung, October 29th, they start talking about how Bonnie is this horrible, horrible person, and how he's a counterfeiter, how he was the one who alerted people to the Hodges, or the that the Millers had this money, like, that he was the one that, like, had given the idea to the Hodges to go like shake down the Millers. And so, you know, and all of the claims they have on the, when they're on the scaffold about to get hung, like match up perfectly with all of the indictments that had been given against Edward Bonney the week prior. So it was clear that there was communication happening where they, they were listing out exactly all of the crimes he had done, which corresponded perfectly with the indictments that Silas Haight had had against them um, on October 26th. So that's why it's pretty clear that there was a coordinated effort in order to try to get Bonnie. But while they're on the scaffold, John Long, he's like totally upfront. He's like, look, I'm a criminal. I was there. I've done enough crimes. 
whatever, hang me, that's fine. He's like, but my brother, Aaron Long and Granville Young, he's like, they do not deserve to be up here. And so, um, he, but he's the one that goes off on Bonnie and just like listing everything. And he gives the names of several people in Nauvoo who can vouch that they can vouch that Bonnie was a counterfeiter. They know that John Long had helped hide Bonnie's presses when the governor's troops were coming in. And so among the names that he lists are, you have a couple guys, Reuben Loomis, you have uh, a guy named Joseph McCall, and they don't end up playing big parts later, but Dr. Williams is one of those that he names as a witness, which Dr. Williams had already said that he could testify. And then he also names a guy named Carlos Jove, who is a non-Mormon who'd lived in Nauvoo. He married Flora Woodworth, who was one of Joseph Smith's plural wives. And there's a whole story there, too. But then the last guy he names is Theodore Turley. I was just going to say, I'm like, I know this has to kind of Theodore yeah. Turley somehow. So October 29th, on the scaffold, John Long names Theodore Turley as one of the people that can testify against Bonnie, that knows that Bonnie was a criminal. And he doesn't say that Theodore Turley himself was the one, but just that Theodore Turley was aware um, of stuff that had happened. And again, it corresponds because the week prior, remember I had said Carlos Jove was married to Flora Woodworth. The week prior, before all the indictments are coming through in Lee County, the day before, a bunch of people from Iowa come in and to Nauvoo and actually search Lucian Woodworth's house for counterfeiting press. And they question his daughter specifically, who was Flora Woodworth. So clearly Carlos Joe was getting targeted at that time too. Silas Haight was probably trying to get him caught so he could help testify against Bonnie too in Lee County. At the time, they mentioned that they got that information because another criminal had been arrested for counterfeiting in Lee County, and of course, the next day, Dr. Williams, the one that is suddenly having to answer for his own counterfeiting charges. <laughs> so Dr. Williams and Carlos Jove were both targeted, and they both end up getting named the next week as people that can um, corroborate these charges against Edward Bonney. So that's in October. So you have these Lee County, Iowa indictments against church leaders plus Edward Bonney. November. November. Silas Haight. Mid-November, Silas Haight, Dr. Williams, and then a guy named David Bates Smith, who was another, another participant of the Nauvoo criminal gang. He uh, lived in Alton, Illinois by that point. They end up intercepting Theodore Turley. Um, he's on his way. He's traveling up or down the river. I don't know if he was on his way to Nauvoo. Um, he was the armorer general of the Nauvoo Legion. So at this time, this is 1845, he's trying to procure a lot of arms. And so I know a lot of weapons. And so earlier he had gone down to New Orleans to purchase a bunch of weapons. He was probably either on his way down or on his way back. But they board the steamer at Alton, Illinois, and they have the local constable arrest Theodore Turley. And so they go back, and there is a local church member at the time who writes a letter. And so he's like, this guy who says he's this agent of the government, which matches Silas Haight, this guy named Dr. Williams from Montrose, Iowa, and then this other guy named Smith, who's this engineer, and which is David Bates Smith. 
They're claiming that they saw counterfeiting equipment in Theodore Turley's shop. So they end up having him arrested, and he goes up to Springfield, Illinois, and he stays in jail for about a month. But again, this is one of those guys who can testify against Edward Bonney, supposedly, right? So in Iowa, okay, so after the indictments are given in Iowa, Silas Haight takes the writs. This is, sorry, back at the end of October. He takes the writs the same day that they're given because it's the last day of the term. And so of the court term. And so he brings them over. He hand delivers them to Carthage, Illinois, to Major Warren, who is head of the governor's troops in the area. And he's like, you need to go into Nauvoo and arrest these church leaders. Because, again, he needs a trial to happen so that he could get these other guys off. And Major Warren's like, okay, he was already planning to go to Nauvoo. He was going to arrest um, Jack Redden for his role in the, as an accessory in the murder of Colonel um, George Davenport. Lyman E. Johnson had tried to um, help have Jack Redden arrested because they were related. Jack Redden's aunt had married Lyman E. Johnson's, or no, sorry, Lyman Johnson's aunt had married uh, Jack Redden's uncle. So they were kind of had this family connection. So Lyman E. Johnson had kind of tricked Jack Redden to coming out on the wharf earlier that day. And he had the sheriff of Rock Island there, and they were trying to arrest Jack Redden. But of course, this is October 1845. The Mormons on the wharf start freaking out because they don't want any Mormons arrested because they think this is a whole anti-Mormon thing. So they start throwing rocks. They start injuring the people. So they're protecting Jack Redden, who outsiders see as like one of the Davenport murderers. <laughs> but they're trying to protect a Mormon from these non-Mormons who are coming in and trying to arrest him. So they end up going down. So later, so um, Warren, so the, the Rock Island County Sheriff, who had already been injured, had already gone down to Carthage and was like, I need your help arresting this guy for the murder of George Davenport. So Warren was already planning to go to Nauvoo to arrest Jack Redden. And then Silas Haight comes over and um, he is like, you know, we need to arrest these church leaders and Edward Bonney and other people. And so Warren's like, okay. So he takes the, the warrants in, but he has no desire to arrest any of the church leaders because in his mind, and we hear about this later, he explains it later, in his mind, it doesn't matter if the church leaders are innocent or guilty. If they get sent to jail, it's going to delay the Mormons leaving Illinois in his mind. And he's like, my job is to make sure they leave. He's like, so I'm not doing anything that's going to possibly delay that. So he wants to come. And so he marches into Nauvoo with all of these soldiers. On the way in, he ends up seeing Hosea Stout with a bunch of armed men. And there had been already a rule that you weren't supposed to have large numbers of, of men because there had already been a lot of armed conflicts. So he's already, so he's furious by the time he comes into Nauvoo, marches up to church leaders. Why are there armed men on the road? You know, I'm trying to keep the peace here. You guys are not helping me. And, you know, like we have a warrant in here. We need to arrest someone. And he's referring to Jack Redden, but church leaders think that they're trying to arrest them back on treason charges that had happened earlier. So John Taylor starts going off on about like, we're not going to allow you to arrest people. He's like, of course, like 
because he's like, I know what it's like to be in police custody, supposedly safe when like, <laughs> he's like, I still have the bullets from when the law was supposedly trying to protect us. He's like, stupid law. So John Taylor goes off on Warren. And so Warren is just sitting there and keep in mind, he has arrest warrants for John Taylor and Brigham Young on counterfeiting charges. He could have totally just flat out right there, just arrested him. But he was a smart guy. And even though he was furious, he just turns around and he leaves and he's like, not doing anything. I'm just leaving here. We're just going to defuse the situation. And so he starts considering um, declaring martial law in Hancock County. And so the Mormons are, start to become very worried about that. And so these two uh, guys, I think it's Orson Hyde and I can't remember who the other is, they write this letter to the governor, like kind of giving their side and like John Taylor gave some spirited, but you know, like not unjustified remarks about, but you know, like we're really, we're trying to work trying and to please, please, please don't have Warren, you know, like, martial law and all this stuff and then um so that's on sunday they write the letter it was saturday when they had marched in and then on tuesday there's this secret meeting that occurs where warren comes in with a bunch of the judges they meet with church leaders and so warren is like like why wouldn't you guys allow me to arrest jack redden and they're like what you were coming in to arrest redden like they had no clue. They thought they were just doing another, in their minds, anti-Mormon thing coming in, just trying to, to be difficult. And he's like, you're like, going to just stop us from arresting murderers? And they're like, no, that would have been fine. <laughs> and so it really was like this massive misunderstanding. And so eventually they're able to kind of quietly like kind of no we're totally fine if you arrest him but i'm pretty sure he's left town by now and so and so that's when warren explains his side of the story where he's like i totally had writs that i was not planning to issue but man it was tempting so anyway we have the minutes from that meeting and it's just it's fascinating to just see all of this interplay because it's all related to these stupid counterfeiting charges. And, um, and, they, and they know that it was Dr. Williams who testified against them. So then you have November. You have Theodore Turley getting arrested. Because remember, he can testify against Bonnie. And so he gets taken to Springfield. It's clear that Warren is not going to allow these Iowa writs to be enforced. He's not going to do it. So they need to figure out another way to get a trial. Because now... Dr. Williams is on counterfeiting charges. He needs to be able to testify against someone so he can get off on his charges. Silas Haight is still trying to punish Bonnie because they're still mad at Bonnie for doing what he did. And so what they end up doing is they go to, they keep stalling and they keep Theodore Turley in jail in Springfield. And they're trying to get him out because they're like, there's no real good solid evidence and he should be able to at least get off on bail. And But apparently it was like a crazy amount of bail and so they eventually were able to get the bail dropped um but not before the beginning of the u.s district or federal court that met in springfield so before you had had hancock county court you'd had lee county now we're doing federal district court in springfield there was a term that, that was starting there and so on the first day of the term 
they get Dr. Williams, they get some other guys, they get Silas Haight, and they issue, they, um, they list these 12 guys in Nauvoo on counterfeiting, which includes a whole bunch of church leaders, it includes Theodore Turley, it includes Joseph H. Jackson, Eaton, Barton, who had already, they'd already been outed as counterfeiters. So everyone already knew these, at least some of these guys were counterfeiters. Peter Hawes is on the list. And you have, and of course, Edward Bonney's on the list, right? So they need a trial to happen. So before Theodore Turley is released from jail, they make sure these indictments are done. So he's released on a $250 bond. But now you have U.S. Marshals now going after church leaders on these counterfeiting charges. So now it's, the Illinois governor can kind of say, you know, it's, it's not me going after you. And the marshals actually go to the governor and say, can we get your help arresting these people? And the governor's like, nope, you may not have our help. Like, uh-uh, I am not helping you guys. We have already had our issues with these people. But the U.S. marshals do go into Nauvoo, and with Silas Haight, they're constantly trying, they're hunting down the church leaders, constantly trying to arrest them. Because they don't really care as much about Bonnie. They don't care as much about Joseph Jackson. They want to get to the big guys. They want to arrest Brigham Young. They want to arrest like, the church leaders. So that's who they're targeting. So they hang out outside the temple, and, they're, and so the church leaders are constantly in hiding having to be in hiding because of these stupid counterfeiting indictments because Silas Haight and Dr. Williams are trying to punish Bonnie. Like, but they're bringing in these church leaders because that pretty much guarantees a trial is going to happen. And so then they can bring in all this stuff. Yeah, it's, it's so convoluted. <laughs> and I'm sure I've lost like a bunch of people already. But this is where you get the story of the bogus Brigham incident. And so it's playing off the idea that counterfeit coin is called bogus. But then you had um, Brigham Young, and he was so proud of this. The church leaders were so proud of this. You had Brigham Young, who was hiding in the temple, and he had the U.S. Marshals outside. Um, and I want to say this was, this was last week in December. You have the, the U.S. Marshals hanging out outside, and they're, they're watching, they're waiting for Brigham Young to come out. And what they end up doing is they have William Miller come out in Brigham Young's coat and his hat. And then they have someone else, like, mention Brigham's name. And so it perks up the U.S. Marshals, and they're like, oh, that must be Brigham Young. And so they go, and they arrest the guy, and they go, and they take him um, to jail to another city, a guy there at the jail is like, you guys are idiots. This is not Brigham Young. <laughs> and, oh my gosh, even the Warsaw Signal said this was, this was a good joke. This was a good prank. Like, okay, Mormons did good on this. <laughs> and so they call it the bogus Brigham incident, but church leaders were so proud of themselves on that one that they got another guy arrested because they tricked the U.S. Marshals into thinking it was Brigham Young. So that's the bogus Brigham incident. Because it was about counterfeiting charges and it was a bogus brand. But about the same time, you have the Illinois governor starts realizing that maybe he can use this to his advantage. And so he sends a letter to Jacob Backenstos, who's the sheriff of Hancock County. 
And he heavily implies that the federal government may be sending in U.S. troops to enforce these federal writs. And he has no control over what the federal government's going to do. And so he purposely starts playing up this risk that federal troops any day are going to be marching into Nauvoo. Um, and it spooks the leaders enough, but, you know, because of enough other things that are going on that they start moving up the timeline for leaving. And they, their first priority is to get everyone who has arrest warrants out for them need to leave first. They, they and their families need to get out of town first. Um, but that's why they end up having to leave at such a horrible time. And the governor admitted later in his, he wrote um, a history of um, Illinois. And he totally admits he overplayed the risk of the federal troops coming in, but he's like, wanted them out, wanted them out. So, so it's funny because you actually had Major Warren initially who didn't want to enforce the arrest warrants because he was worried it would delay them leaving. But then later on you have the Illinois governor who's like, okay, like we can use this to our advantage. We can do this. So historically, a lot of historians have thought that the counterfeiting charges that were done in both Iowa and in Springfield at the federal level were employed by government officials to get the saints out of Illinois sooner. And so that was my argument for the Mormon History Association presentation, was that no, the counterfeiting accusations are actually this ploy by these other criminals to try to get back at Bonnie, try to get a trial, trying to save these three guys initially, but now trying to get these other guys off the hook because now they have counterfeiting charges against them. Um, so, yeah. So it was not the governor who initially did the counterfeiting charges. It had very little to do with that. But, um, but the governor used it. He did use it later on. Mm -hmm. Most of the Mormons... So the only person of the 12 men who were indicted who eventually does go to trial... Um, most of the Mormons, obviously, they leave, they go west. Silas Haight and Edward Bonney still go after Theodore Turley. There's, there's evidence that like they're still trying to catch him before the, the Iowa court. They're trying because, again, he can testify against Bonney, right? And Bonney wants to get to him before he can testify against him. But eventually, uh, Bonney is put on trial. And this is where you have Dr. Williams and Silas Haight testify against him, and they have some other guys testify against him. And this is where you have guys from the Hancock County Grand Jury who come in and say, yeah, Dr. Williams testified to us, and he, said, he gave no indication that Edward Bonney was involved. He gave no indication. So eventually, Edward Bonney gets off the hook more because Dr. Williams and Silas Haight, they're able to prove that they're not super trustworthy witnesses, that it's clear that they had a motive, that they were trying to go after Bonnie, they were trying to get Bonnie convicted. But it's interesting because the court reporters at the time are like, wow, Bonnie does not look good coming from this testimony. But it, it, it is clear that there was some conspiracy and coordination against him. So, but the, so 10 of the jurors actually signed this letter telling the the U.S. Treasury, that they need to um, fire Silas Haight as an, a contractor agent to um, locate counterfeiters and arrest counterfeiters. 
that Dr. Williams is just like this horrible person and that, you know, like just kind of exposing this entire scheme, this entire conspiracy, which is why we know about it. Like, I mean, and so of course, um, so Bonnie ends up, you know, off. So he's able to say, obviously that meant I was innocent. Right. And other people are like, not really. <laughs> um, and then what's really fascinating is that like about a month or two after the trial ends, because it gets, it gets delayed and there's problems with witnesses. So the trial doesn't end up happening until the end of 1846. Sorry, the end. No, the end of 1847. Sorry. Or was it 48? Now I'm, now I'm messing it up. But it takes a couple of years for the trial to actually be completed. But then about a month or two after the trial is completed, in a completely different counterfeiting bust over in Illinois, there is this letter discovered among the effects. Like when they're going through, they're finding all the evidence. And there's this letter from Edward Bonney to this criminal talking about how he's setting up his own merchandising outlet in Montrose, Iowa. It's dated from when he moved to Montrose, Iowa, talking about how he's excited to... It's using all of the euphemisms, but basically he was excited to start um, helping with the, the horse theft ring and all of these things. Basically makes him look like a criminal. But it comes out after he's already been you know, um, declared uh, not guilty on the counterfeiting charges. But it's very clear he was very organized with it. So he ends up developing a pretty bad reputation. So he, had, so in, um, this is beginning of 47. So then he starts writing his version of the story. And so that's where we start getting where he's handwriting um, and we get these rough drafts. Um, and it's interesting because in the rough draft, he, uh, the initial one, he, he talks a lot more about Nauvoo, talks a lot more about his close relationship with Joseph Smith. He talks a lot more about how Joseph Smith trusted him so much, about how, you know, of course he wasn't wild about the Mormons, and like, you know, he's trying to kind of distance himself a little bit, but by the time you get to the final version, he like, he barely even talks about Nauvoo. Like, he's just talking about like, oh, I, I briefly, I've been there, like, he it's too um, problematic. It's too problematic. Like, he can't spin it a good way. And so, but he does talk about how criminals would come to Nauvoo in order to avoid being arrested. He descri- And he describes the criminal gang networks, the way they had the way stations, the way that they would steal horses. Like, I mean, he goes into detail in how the criminal gangs worked, and so, which makes it fascinating. But yeah, he definitely plays up that he is the hero, and he was just trying to figure out what crimes other people were doing. <laughs> and of course, he had nothing to do with them. And as proof, at the end, you know, like he prints out this uh, statement that the jurors had written talking about how Silas Haight and Dr. Williams were just these awful, awful people that were just having all of these false charges. And so, I mean, it's just, it's trying to figure out all of this stuff has been crazy, but it's also, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. Like just all the different threads like coming around. So and you're, you're writing a book on this. Uh, <laughs> I'll eventually have to just because it's too convoluted. Yeah, not to. Yeah. Um, Cause I know you talked to a couple of publishers at, uh, Oh, 
Yeah, like, well, crime is just kind of a fun topic. And right. so, yeah, there were a couple of publishers that came up and said, if you want to do a book on it, we'll, we'll take it. But, but, I mean, it's just, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, the exposés, like, you know, a lot of times people will just dismiss the exposés because it's like it's anti-Mormon stuff. But there is such cool, fascinating information in there. It's just, it's difficult to parse out when, you know, like when they're telling the truth, yeah. when they're not, when they're just kind of stretching the truth a little bit. Because they all um, have uh, self-motives. Uh, exactly. So they definitely have some motives. Like Joseph H. Jackson, I had mentioned, he had tried to um, court Hiram Smith's daughter. So Hiram Smith looks really bad in Joseph H. Jackson's little expose. He really goes after Hiram, which if you know Hiram's like reputation as a total stick in the mud, like that's one of the big red flags in Joseph H. Jackson. It's like, you can accuse Joseph Smith of some shenanigans, but when you start accusing Hiram Smith, you're like, that starts to look a little weird. (laughs) But it's interesting. I mean, there's several people you have, of course you have like John C. Bennett who kind of goes into a little bit of the crimes in his 1842 expose, Um, but he's mainly quoting court records and newspapers. So, you can kind of um, confirm his stuff. Joseph H. Jackson's expose is amazing. Uh, Edward Bonney's expose is fascinating, but it's fascinating to compare the rough drafts with the final one. It's weird that we have rough drafts because you wouldn't normally have those, right? You wouldn't normally have them. And so, um, How do we have them? What? How do we have the rough draft? Okay, so they were deposited by, I think it was his granddaughter, in, uh, I don't know if it's University of Illinois... Wow. In one of the, in a in a university repository out there, and then the church history library has a copy of the microfilm, and so the church history library. So that's where I was able to access it. Is they have a microfilm of the rough drafts, um, and the only reason I knew that there were rough drafts available is in you know like just doing the research and doing different articles because obviously people have looked into Edward Bonney because he's just a fascinating character someone had mentioned these rough drafts that were at this place. And so I was like, well, that's cool. Like, is there any way I could access them through contacting the special collections? So then when I found out the church history library had it, I was like, okay, well, I have to go down there and I have to look at it. And it's really cool because a lot of what's in his book, he doesn't necessarily list his sources, but he'll talk about how he's receiving letters all the time. He'll talk about this. He'll talk about that. In the rough draft, he actually quotes the letters. He gives the dates. He gives the name. He gives it from. And so it's really cool. You can actually see where this information is coming from. And you can see the dates. And so you can see, oh, this is how he knew. So this is how I can prove that the indictments were from this court term. We're coming from the state because Lyman E. Johnson wrote him a letter warning him that he had these indictments in Lee County, Iowa. And so it's really fascinating. The rough drafts are actually really helpful in kind of pinning down some neat details that we can corroborate. So, But that's the thing, is finding the details to corroborate. Going through the exposés, going through a lot of the newspapers are really good because, you know, a lot of these court, you know, because people love the, the true crime stuff, right? And so a lot of the times the reporters would write up exactly who was with the witnesses, what they actually testified. And so that's where we get it, like on the Hodges trial, the Bonnie's trial, they're all from these newspapers that are reporting exactly what these people are saying. The Davenport trial was such a big deal that there was actually a pamphlet published that not only gave the details of the crime, but they also gave the court transcript, like a summarized version of the court transcript. And then 
They also had interviews. The reporter went and interviewed the three criminals before they were hung. And like, so, so we can actually get a little bit more of their background. Where did they come from? And, and then it goes into, like, it gives the confession from Robert Birch, which gives a few more inside details of the murder. And so that was really cool. That was a major find. I was able to, the only place I could find that had a copy of it was the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library. Wow. And so I was able to contact them and this, and the special collections area, they were awesome. They were able to um, send me a PDF of it. And they, the um, lady that was helping me, she apologized profusely because it was actually just a photocopy of it. They didn't even have the original pamphlet, but it was the only place I could find that had a copy. And so she just apologized profusely. And so I'm like sitting there and like transcribing it. But it totally, I was able to find enough spots where it was like, it had been quoted in some other newspapers. And so I was able to kind of figure it out. So I basically wrote up a transcript of it. I'm like, okay, if anyone else is trying to research this, here's, here's this. Because I know enough other sources about this. I can, I can um, figure this out a little bit easier than maybe someone else can. I hope you all see what an amazing researcher she <laughs> But it was awesome. I, I have to give a huge shout out to Special Collections, both at BYU, obviously Church History Library. I've had people help out so much. BYU Special Collections scanned the full William Hall's expose, which talks about counterfeiting as well. Um, and they totally scanned his entire expose. For you, one basically? For me. Nice. Yeah. I mean, like, you have to pay for the images, but right. I was like, you guys will seriously do that? I'll pay for it. But, like, because it's hard for me. With my position, like, since I'm a stay-at-home mom, it's hard for me to go down there and right. actually, you know, like, sit there and research it in special collections. And they were awesome. So I have had such people, archivists, are just awesome. They are so helpful. Anyway, so I want to give a good. shout out to that. So when's your book coming out? <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to get, um, so obviously I'm working on my portfolio to get certified as a genealogist. Right. Or become a certified genealogist to get credentialed. <laughs> so this is your side project. Yeah. And then I also, one of my big things, because I am working on Theodore Turley, is there's not a lot of uh, peer-reviewed stuff out there on him. And so a lot of the stuff, the only item that really is published that all the scholars quote is this 1978 compilation of family history information, which, you know, took 20 years to put together, but it's very outdated and it's wrong, and it's incorrect in a lot of ways. So I do want to get an article out just on Theodore Turley, just kind of correcting the record and giving a good peer-reviewed source for scholars to use. Um, that's why I was so excited at Sunstone when I was, we were listening in Todd Compton's section, yeah. and he was talking about, um, so for people know that Todd Compton came out with this book in Sacred Loneliness, which talked about all the different wives of Joseph Smith. He's now come out through Signature Books, this um, second book in Sacred Loneliness, The Documents, right. where he's actually printing a lot of these so that the women could kind of tell their full story in their own words, um, as opposed to him just piecing out different parts. But because so many of Joseph Smith's wives ended up marrying Brigham Young, so he has an appendix that has, you know, the list of all Joseph Smith's wives. He also has an appendix that has a list of all of Brigham Young's wives. And so Brigham Young ended up marrying one of my family members, a girl named Marianne Turley. And so he was in that appendix, and he and I are working on a 
we're both contributors to this polygamy book that's coming out in the next year. Didn't know about I that. I could talk about that one. But, um, so he had contacted me because he was like, oh, you're a Turley person. And so, you know, you might be interested that I, I have this I think we need to blurb. change your, my, your, your title from stay-at-home mom. <laughs> I'm I'm a nerd. I'm a, well, but um, he uh, so he contacted me. He gave me this little biography, thinking it would be really cool. You know, like I'd be really interested in it. And I kind of took it. I was like, well, that's great. I'm so glad you showed this to me because this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong. And so like, I have, like all these things. So I send him back the edits, and he's like, oh. It's like, I wonder if I can contact the publisher and have them change it before oh, I no. some print. And I was like, oh, that's why I thought you were contacting me. I felt really bad. But he did. He was able to get all of the changes. And so... Um, so you're correcting Todd Compton. I, well, okay, I'm correct. There's not a lot of good stuff out there on the Turley family that's correct, that's been <laughs> researched really well, right? Um, so that was like huge to me. So he was able to get the corrections in there. And so that is like, so yeah, we're starting the right to correct person the person in charge of the Theodore Turley family. Uh, well, well, I'm in charge of the website. So I do a lot of the research. I was a past president, but, but it's fun. And for me to do the research, it's just, it's super fun. Um, and trying to share because we're still finding new things about them. The polygamy book. Okay. So this one's coming out from Signature Books. Um, Cheryl Bruno, who used to um, do Wheat and Tears, she used to blog on Wheat and Tears. Um, she's now one of the authors of the new Freemasonry book, um, Method Infinite. She is doing this book, and it's, it's on early polygamy in Nauvoo. And um, most of the, the chapters, most of the essays, they're all from different people. You have big names like Todd Compton. She had sent out, like, a request basically saying, you know, like, we need a couple more people. And if you want to have, like, if you're publishing with some of these big names, you know, like, so, like, so that's how I went in. And I was like, well, I have this Theodore Turley information because he was one of the early polygamists in Nauvoo. And so that's why I decided to write an essay more. I wanted to focus more on the three sisters that he married in Nauvoo because the family had backdated one of his marriages. And so he was often noted in a lot of scholarly stuff. He was always like a footnote that like, theoretically he had this super early plural marriage before anyone else besides Joseph Smith had a plural marriage. But like Gary Bergera and other people had already figured out that it was probably backdated because the the girl had actually had an illegitimate child and there was this huge high council case because this guy had told her that church leaders were practicing polygamy and so like I mean so there was, was okay. this huge thing. It wasn't John C. Bennett. It was not John C. Bennett. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a few months after John C. Bennett was excommunicated for all of that stuff. Anyway, so historians had already figured out that this early marriage was probably backdated, that Theodore Turley was probably later. To latest. cover up for the child. It's to cover up for the child, to basically legitimize the child for later family records. And so, so I knew Theodore Turley, like he's often mentioned, this, was, this would be a great opportunity to kind of correct some information. But also these three sisters really had some fascinating stories, like... And so there was, and again, so much more information out there that we had discovered. 
that I really wanted to get their stories out there. And so um, one of the sisters, I had actually, the whole reason I had gotten into researching her was because um, we, as an organization, we decided to give her a headstone up in, we found out she was buried in the Salt Lake City Cemetery, um, but she didn't have a headstone. And it turned out there was another family member buried right next to her who also didn't have a headstone. And so I was like, I kind of took that on as my special project, like when I first started coming into the organization. So then I suddenly had to research her, right? And so then that's when I started coming up with like digging into all this early polygamy, all of the deception, all of the stuff. And it was crazy, but that means that I always had kind of a soft spot for her. And so that was something I really thought was cool was in this book about early polygamy, having this opportunity to kind of take the viewpoint of why would some of these women agree to participate? What was happening in their backgrounds that they may have seen this as a, as a positive, that they would have seen more positive than negative coming out of agreeing to become one of these early plural wives. And so that was, that was a big deal to me. So I'm excited for that chapter to come out, given the stories of um, those three women. Yeah. So. Might have to have it back on. <laughs> but yeah, it's, there's some interesting stuff. But yeah, the crime stuff, I, uh, it is convoluted. It is very convoluted. We're going to change it from stay-at-home mom to stay-at-home researcher. <laughs> yep. Still the on-call parent. I hope you guys there. understand what an amazing researcher is. <laughs> But it's really, it's really fun. It, like, obviously, I get really excited about it. And, um, <laughs> but it's just, it's fascinating, and it's just, yeah. Well, I love talking to nerds like you. <laughs> That's why we get along. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to somebody last night, and I'm like, you know, don't get me started. I'll, I'll talk your ear off. <laughs> exactly. So, all right. Well, anything else we should add before, we, before I let you go? I think... I think we've given people enough for right now. I think we're good. <laughs> All right. Well, everybody, uh, give her lots of thumbs ups and tell her to write more on Wheat and Terror so we can find out more of this stuff. So. <laughs> I have talked a little bit about the Nauvoo counterfeiting on Wheat and Terror. Yeah. I do have three. Oh, that's right. You've got three of those. Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, I'll Up make sure that. I link to those. So, yeah. All right. Well, Marianne Clements, thank you for being on Gospel Tangents. Really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Marianne Clements. Marianne, thank you so much for sitting down with me. You're an amazing researcher and uh, love working with you at Wheaton Terrace. In our next conversation, I'm going to go from a new timer to an old timer in Mormon history. Yes, we've got Newell Bringhurst back on the show. He's written a biography on the prophet Harold B. Lee. So one of the interesting things is I think he was ordained as a 10-year-old deacon. Is that, is that That's right? correct. Yeah, that's very unusual because I didn't realize that was even within uh, legal uh, or within church, uh, uh, you know, canon, that they would allow somebody to be ordained as a 10-year-old deacon. And that was reflective of his precocity, that he was extremely bright. Uh, he stood out in terms of his intellect and his drive and just who he was. If you like what we're doing here on Gospel Tangents, please become a paid subscriber at gospeltangents.com or patreon.com slash gospeltangents. We've got full transcripts on our website at gospeltangents.com. And if you'd like to check out some of our other conversations, click over here. Thanks.